and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 164, Hollow Victories. Last time, Hitler's vaunted Wehrmacht and his SS divisions had failed to take the town of Kursk in July of 1943. What's more, their losses were such that, from here on out, the Soviets would be the ones determining the pace of the war. All Berlin could do was slow their enemy's progress and watch it happen. But there was one chance to save the Third Reich. The first part had already been accomplished, as the SS had helped rescue Mussolini, who had been removed from power. Perhaps it was possible to restore him one day, but for that to happen and to stem the Soviet tide, Nazi Germany needed to swell the ranks of its armed forces. But since that meant taking in the Germanic peoples of Europe, they would have to be incorporated into the Waffen-SS, not the regular army. The point being that if those very peoples, scattered all over Europe, could be brought in, trained, equipped, and let's be honest, indoctrinated, yet as things got worse, that became less important, then these new armies would be able to stun the Allies, perhaps drive them back to such a point that would secure a resolution of hostilities. And yet, as we have already seen, Himmler and his right-thinking lieutenant, Gottlob Berger, have been working since 1942 to make the Waffen-SS a truly multinational formation. And when the war against Russia had been going well, enough Germanic peoples were coming in, not only to replace losses, but enough to create new SS divisions. But late in 42, even Himmler had to swallow hard when recruits were looked for in places not associated with Nazi propaganda, as in who was acceptable, namely people of Eastern Europe and the Balkans. Still, desperate times, desperate measures. Not that this stopped the SS from taking the oldest of the Hitler Youth, nor to search for men in northwestern Europe. But there was at least one problem with this tactic. The numbers thus far that had come out of places like Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, parts of Belgium, had never really been enough to make a difference on the Eastern Front. True, the Nordland Division had been recently created and staffed, but Himmler needed 50 such formations, and Nazi cruelty throughout its empire did not engender men to sign up to help their oppressors, regardless of their fear or hatred of Bolshevism. The locals were too busy hating the Nazis. So much for the SS saving Hitler's Germany. But Himmler was not ready to give up. He just needed bodies and where they came from and what they thought of politics was becoming less important. So the SS Fuhrer turned inward. Why not the Germanic workers already in Germany? Of course, that meant working with and coming to an understanding with those outside the SS, but Himmler felt he could be charming if called upon. One such person who would work with Himmler was Albert Speer. By this time, Speer, Minister of Armaments and Munitions, was also the de facto leader of Organization TOT, a civilian and military engineering organization. They did work all over the Third Reich, and by this time were bringing in many forced laborers 
to keep up with the demands. But that did not mean the Germanic peoples of this force could not fight for Germany. The SS recruiters got to work. The good news was that just over 8,000 men volunteered. The bad news, handed down by military necessity, said that only a little more than 3,000 of them were qualified for service. By the end of 1943, the Nordland Division broke down like this. There were 4,100 Reich Germans and 5,900 Volksdeutsch from Romania. The latter were of the infantry, cannon fodder. The former were in positions of importance. And as these men from Romania were not of the right stuff, instead of being designated along the lines of, say, 6th SS Panzer Division Nordland, they were labeled 11th SS Volunteer Panzer Grenadier Division Nordland, thus putting a shine on, at best, auxiliary troops. And as this division would never be taken seriously enough to give it armor, it was sent to Croatia to deal with Tito's partisans. In contrast, in mid-1943, the Flanders Legion, of some 600 men, were remade into the SS Volunteer Assault Brigade Langmark. In time, new volunteers, as well as men from various SS recruitment centers, would come aboard to raise the Langmark's number to 2,000. But unlike those troops from Romania, this brigade would have the punching power to go toe-to-toe with the Soviets or anyone else they were pitted against. Within this brigade was a mechanized anti-tank company, an assault gun battalion with Stug 3s, and their own anti-aircraft company. Another such brigade was made up of the French-speaking Walloons of southern Belgium. Again, with their impressive firepower and training, by November of 43, they were sent east to support the Viking Division in the Ukraine. And more on that later. The last brigade of this kind, not that the Germans were scraping the bottom of the barrel just yet, was the SS Volunteer Brigade Frankreich. Again, as Himmler had access to impressive weaponry, this well-equipped unit, after training, was sent to the east in July of 44 to help the SS Horst Vessel Division. Yet this subject of Himmler, who was ever widening the acceptable categories of men allowed into the SS, has to mention the British Free Corps. When the war broke out, Himmler had taps kept on the British fascists within Germany. Soon, the Legion of St. George was created, and British POWs were asked to join. The short of it is that only 15 men said yes, though at one point there were as many as 50. It seems that political ideology is one thing, but nationalism, or patriotism, is quite another. Yet after the horrendous Battle of Stalingrad, which ended in early 1943, the Wehrmacht and the SS found itself needing more men and becoming less concerned about their political beliefs or where they were from. Himmler next sent his top recruiter to the lands of the former Yugoslavia, though those territories had been divided between Italy, Hungary, Bulgaria, with Germany keeping a slice for itself. Through fair means and foul, the SS were able to find some 40,000 men, but 
by the time they reached the training camps, many had been turned away. Himmler's man was focused on numbers, not on quality, and he had delivered. Still, the men from this area who made it through the training and were sent to the front were not taken seriously by the SS veterans who were dying daily. Yet perhaps a more clear sign of the end times of the Third Reich could have been the first non-Christian division raised from this area, the 13th Waffen Mountain Division of the SS Henschar from Croatia, made up of Muslims. In 1941, Croatia became an independent nation under the murderous Ante Pavelic. He, a Roman Catholic, was determined to deal with his country's Orthodox Christians thusly. Kill a third, convert a third, deport a third. And he certainly wanted the help of the Muslims of Croatia, with some who did join up, in fact. But Himmler had his eyes on these men as well. Conveniently, Himmler's racial experts, who had the same worldview as an Ante Starveich, a 19th century theorist, who claimed ridiculously that Croats, even the Bosnian Muslims in Croatia, were really Goths descended from Scandinavia, which meant they were acceptable to the SS for recruitment. Either way, Himmler personally, though not an expert, thought their religion was martial enough to make them good soldiers. And he would get the active encouragement of the Grand Mufti in Jerusalem, who was engaged in his own war against the British and Jews in and around Palestine. Fortunately for the Mufti, Himmler and Hitler were of the same mind, that they needed access to these nearly 350 million Muslims of the world to help fight their enemies. So the division was raised. But then came the reality that, after all, all politics is local. The Muslims indeed came forward, but because they were promised a new uniform, which they gathered and then sold for cash. Some wanted guns and training, as Croatia's leader, Pavelic, who was currently killing tens of thousands of Orthodox Christians, might, the Muslims were thinking, come for them next. Still, the quality was subpar, and there were never enough volunteers to form a division. So then, conscription was induced. The Croat government did not like this, but they were powerless to stop it. By September 43, there were some 20,000 men in uniform, trained in Germany and sent back to Croatia, again to take on Tito and his communist partisans. By 1943, with the Eastern Front coming back, ever closer to the fatherland of Germany, the SS recruiters were allowed to find men in the Ukraine. Himmler had vowed never to have Slavs in the SS, but his racial experts conveniently told him that there was German blood in the area, as western Ukraine had been a part of the Austro-Hungarian province of Galicia. So, good enough. It didn't hurt their recruitment that Stalin had caused the deaths of millions of people in the area with his collective farms and deportations and selling their grain. Before 1943 was over, some 53,000 Ukrainians would volunteer, but that number would be cut down 
to 25,000 by the officers, looking for worthy men. Still overall, the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS Galician was considered workable. This scenario was played out in the Baltic states as well, though Lithuania was considered too closely aligned with Poland to be seriously considered, the Latvians and Estonians volunteered enough men to make up two Baltic divisions. Though not the best soldiers, the men from these areas were not fighting for Hitler, but against Stalin and his policies. It would be closer to the truth to say that Stalin owned 1943 rather than Hitler. After all, there was no talk in Berlin after Kursk, of moving forward, only the best way to stymie the Soviets who were coming west. Hence, the late summer of 43 was spent retreating, ever retreating, through eastern Ukraine. The only bit of good news, at least for Himmler, was that his men of Das Reich, Viking, and Totenkopf were instrumental during this process of retreats to making those orderly. The German objective for 1943 was to set up a new defensive line behind the river Dnieper, but even this was delayed as von Manstein had to keep trying to convince Hitler to give up the Donbass region. Think of the land just above the northeast corner of the Sea of Azov. Though Hitler was loath to give up this industrial center, the military necessity made the move obvious. With this done, the Viking Division safeguarded nearby fellow units across the Dnieper around the city of Cherkasy, located about 75 miles southeast of Kiev. And the Totenkopf and Das Reich did the same for the relatively slower-moving infantry, about 60 miles even further to the southeast. By September, the German units were in place, ready, or rather hoping, they would be able to inflict massive casualties from their fortified positions. But it was not to be. The Soviets came close to the Dnieper in early October, rested for a very short time, and then pressed forward. As the now-defending Germans could not man the entire line, enemy formations were able to cross the Dnieper in October. But exploiting a bridgehead is another matter altogether. As such, the SS divisions went back to playing fireman, stopping enemy penetrations before they could become breakouts. About 180 miles, or 289 kilometers, southeast of Kiev, at Kivroy Rog, the Soviets pressed this city. But as it was a central communications hub, the Germans were unwilling to give it up. The Totenkopf was in that area, so it was up to them to put down this latest momentum-building drive. Kivroy Rog is about 20 miles away from the river, which shows the Soviet penetration. Yet Stalin wanted more. He wanted the city taken, which would disrupt the Germans' entire right flank. And while the Germans still held the Crimea, there was a 25-mile gap in between the northernmost point of that German-held territory versus the southern line along the Dnieper. To lose the southern or right flank would doom those men holding the Russian peninsula. On October 27th, Soviet armor came 
at the outskirts of Crivroy Rog, but before the city proper was entered, the 40th Panzer Corps, with the Totenkopf leading the way, smashed into the Soviets' right flank. Caught off guard, which still showed somewhat the Russians' lack of professionalism, the Soviets stood and fought for days. But in the end, the Germans had the will and motivation to win, not to mention having the good start of hitting the enemy in the middle of their formation. The Soviets were driven back to the Dnieper, but not back across it. Still, this was considered a German success as they held the town. That is, until they decided to abandon it in February of 44. While this had been going on, the Viking division, shielding the city of Cherkasy to the north of Krivroy Rog, was dealing with a similar threat. The Soviets had crossed the Dnieper near them, but were contained. So the Germans couldn't push the enemy back into the river, but the Soviets could not move out from the bank. A minimal winning situation for the Germans. Fortunately, in November, the Viking was augmented by the heavily equipped 5th SS Volunteer Assault Brigade Walulian from Belgium mentioned earlier. The Belgians did well on their first outing, but it must be said they were not going up against Stalin's best. Yet all of these slight penetrations were merely brush fires compared to what was happening closer to Kiev. The battle that lost Kiev to the Germans in the early days of Barbarossa had been won for the likes of Mars, the god of war, and Stalin, a minor god himself, now with armies of millions of men, wanted it back. Unfortunately for the Germans, Kiev sat on the Dnieper, and further, the Soviets had not one, but two bridgeheads on the western side, near the city. And in early November, the Russian armor broke out and came at either side of the city. This was too much for the German forces within Kiev, so a retreat was ordered. But as the Soviets had won the city, without losing numerous tanks and men, they kept on the Germans' heels. Soon it looked as if the city Zitormir, about 30 miles or 48 kilometers due west of Kiev, would fall as well. As long as the Germans ran, the Soviets followed. But something had to give for the defenders, because if Zitormir was taken and the Soviets could reinforce this new position, well, Stalin had the numbers to send other troops through this gap, who could then turn south. The entire defensive line for the Germans, from Kiev to the Black Sea, might end up having to fight enemy troops in front and behind them. The only option to the Germans was to halt a planned counterattack further south, again to make sure the Crimea was not choked off, and to use those forces to close or at least contain this growing Soviet salient. Das Reich and Liebstandata the latter just back from Italy, were tapped to get the job done. Yet the Das Reich and their company of tigers got there first. Unloaded from the trains late on November 6th at the railhead that was in between Kiev and Zitormir, and a bit to the south, they saw pandemonium as the locals ran hither and yon, while the Germans burnt all their paperwork. They were getting good at this. 
the Tigers headed north, hoping to catch the Russians, who were surging west, in their left flank. On November 11th, Dusselike was able to sneak up on the closest Soviet tank formation, taking a break, and laid into them with fire. The Soviets looked around, panicked, jumped back into their tanks, closed the hatches, and returned fire, but then pulled back. The Soviet offensive was over. However, some of their units had already reached Zittormir, so the orders issued now to the SS was to go a bit further north, cut the road between Kiev and Zittormir, which would then cut off the enemy troops at Zittormir. The Liebstandarte, now on the scene, would be assisted by General Balk's 48th Panzer Corps, yet all seven divisions of his were under strength. This formation moved out and by November 17th reached and secured the road. As there was no heavy enemy pressure at this location, they moved to the west to surprise and capture Zittormir and the Soviet troops occupying it. As this panzer force was still not taxed by their activities, it was decided to immediately head back east to take on the enemy troops stationed around Brusilov, closer to Kiev. As they approached that city on November 20th, the Liebstandarte went in first, and for whatever reason, arrogance or haste, they did so in a straightforward manner. But of all the changes to the Soviet army since 1941, one of the largest was of Russia's number of artillery pieces and self-propelled rockets. The Liebstandarte found itself within a rainstorm of falling shells, and were thus stopped. This left Balk's panzers no choice but to use the encircling method, which worked out well as it caught the Soviets, thinking they had stopped the attack, off guard. As it had been a double-flanking movement, the Soviets, now wary of entrapment, backed up and abandoned the city. So... It did fall to the Germans, but they had few Russian POWs or casualties to show for it, and that had been Balk's main goal. The Germans would continue moving east, but were going slower now as the enemy had brought forward more units through the Kiev hole. But then, on November 26th, the temperature rose just enough to turn the roads back into quagmires. The Tiger tanks had proven themselves most effective against the T-34s and the PACs, or anti-tank guns. To be sure, it was a risky proposition, the Tigers going up against weapons designed specifically to destroy them. But the SS tank crews used their experience and applied stealth as much as courage and superior technology. When the ground froze again in December, the 48th Panzer Corps and the Lieb headed out eastward. Their goal was to retake Kiev and push the enemy units near them back across the Dnieper. To help in this, by now, the SS Division had their battalion of Mark V Panther tanks. Though not perfect, its armor-piercing shells would have no trouble destroying any T-34s that came within range. With the Liebs Panthers leading the way, the Germans came upon 
the Soviet line in front of Kiev, and they pushed it back some 26 miles. And they were moving so quickly that they captured the staffs of four divisions. Along the way, at least 100 Soviet tanks and 76 packs were destroyed by the Lieb alone. But whether from the long supply line behind the front or Allied bombings, this drive was forced to stop due to a lack of supplies on December 21st. Still, the Soviet attempt to push the front so far west and so quickly had been checked. As for Das Reich, as it had been fighting almost non-stop since the Battle of Kharkov, it was pulled back to France for an infusion of new troops. But before anyone on the German side could congratulate themselves for this impressive counteroffensive, and it truly was one for the history books, the Soviets launched a massive counterattack of their own on December 24th. And this one was along the entire Dnieper line. As much as the Germans had fought and lost men along the way, it had been for nothing. The Soviets were coming in overwhelming numbers. <laughs> 